So I want to start this afternoon with a question. Um, how do you respond to conflict? How do you respond to opposition when someone gets in your face or criticizes you or just more subtly goes about making his life as difficult for you as possible? How do you respond when someone opposes you? Turn to the person next to you. Um, are you a fight person or a flight person? Right, those are the two main responses. Right, Fight, you get back in their face, you stick at it, you go right back at them. Flight, you get out of the situation. Are you fight or flight? Turn to the person, uh, people around you. Fight or flight? Okay, great. Come back together there. Um, I wonder if your answer would have been the same if I said, what about when the reason for opposition, when the cause of conflict is your faith in Jesus, is being a Christian? If, if you, fight, you fight or flight then. So imagine it's that conversation and someone's saying, oh, you, you don't really believe that, right? Are you the kind of person where you get back and you stick in the conversation, you kind of hold your corner, maybe fight your corner? Or are you the kind of person who just gets out of there as fast as possible? Like, oh, look, there's a bird. Like, wh- whatever it is to get out of that part of the conversation, <laughs> right? Or maybe, and this is the question I've been wrestling with myself this week, maybe you're not fight or flight when it comes to that. You're basically a void. You don't want to end up in that situation. And so you live out your faith in such a way that you're never going to invite oppositional conflict. It's Monday morning, right? Maybe you're in the office or wherever. And someone says, oh, what do you do at the weekend? You'll give them all kinds of details about what you did on Saturday. <laughs> but you won't mention that you went to church. Because that, you know. Or, or you, um, you do end up in a conversation where you are talking about Jesus, and then someone asks a question, and you think, yeah, I'm not going to really answer that one. Because if I gave them the true answer to that, then they wouldn't like it. You should just shave the, do you know, you know, you know what I mean? The hard edges of the gospel, the hard edges of Christianity, you just shave those off because otherwise you might get pushed back. Fight, flight, or avoid. Often it feels like those are your choices when it comes to the opposition that we might face as we live out our faith. But as we look at the book of Acts, we see that the early church did not avoid conflict. They did not avoid opposition. Far from it. They boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus when they knew they were going to get hit for it. They knew that opposition was going to come. In the passage you read for us in Acts chapter 12, opposition does come. In fact, persecution, arrests, death come. But they don't fight back. They don't run away. They don't change tack. Instead, the church prays. The church prays, and that changes everything. It really does. Because When we pray, when the church prays, the Lord Almighty hears and answers. So let's um, let's dive in. Acts chapter 12. Um, We're going to start verse 1. And the first thing we see is that the church is under attack. And look down on page 1106. Acts 12, verse 1. 
It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval also among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So uh, this is King Herod, and he is the grandson of the King Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And now he's trying to kill Jesus' church. He's uh, arresting uh, many people in verse 1. He puts James, the brother of John, to death with the sword in verse 2. That's one of Jesus' three closest friends. You know, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. You see that lots of times in the Gospels, it's that James. And then when he sees that the Jewish leaders like what he's doing, he arrests Peter again. Basically, with the, with the plan is, bring him out for a show trial and have him killed too. The church is under attack. And it's, it's pretty brutal. I mean, I, at verse 2, there's something brutal about how stark it is, right? He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. There is no, there is no explanation. There is no reasoning. There is no trial. There is no case against. There's just an execution. It's brutal. And at the same time, it's petty, isn't it? Was there one good reason for any of this? Verse 1, he arrested some belonging to the church because they did, no, not because they did something wrong, just intending to persecute them. Verse 3, he doesn't seize Peter because Peter is a threat to national security. He seizes Peter because he thinks the Jewish leaders will like him if he seizes Peter. It's brutal and it's petty at the same time. The church is under attack. And that remains true today. If we look at the wider world, if we look at the big picture, the church is under attack. Um, so um, we're going to bring up a picture on the screen here, um, hopefully. Yeah, great. This is uh, Jason and Sarah Thomas. So they're, some of our, they're two of our mission partners. We support them financially as a church, and we pray for them. Here they are with their two children. Benji, who's the, the little one, was born like 10 days ago, so they did well to get me that picture. Um, they uh, spent a number of years ministering with students in the Middle East, um, they're now back in, in England, preparing, um, God willing, for ministry in India. Um, and, and India is a country where at the minute the, the government is allowing or perhaps encouraging Hindu nationalists to cleanse India of Christianity. There are 69 million Christians in India, so that's more than the entire population of the UK. Not more than the number of Christians in the UK, the, the entire population of the UK. And Hindu nationalists are trying to cleanse India of Christianity. Churches burned to the ground, pastors killed, normal Christians shot dead for telling other people about Jesus. The church is under attack. And I wanted to share with you one particular story that Sarah and Jason shared with me about an Indian student um, called Farshan. Here he is in the car. If we get, click on the next picture. Here he is in the car with, um, with Sarah and Jason. Um, and they met him um, through their work in the Middle East where he had gone to study. Um, and wonderfully, he um, converted to Christianity, became a Christian. Um, he became a Christian in his final year, and he went back home before his final semester. And he told his parents, I've become a Christian, I'm going to get baptized. And Farshan's family said to him, you've got a choice. You can follow through with this and become a Christian, but we will not let you go back and finish your studies. Or you can give up Jesus, and we'll let you go back and complete. And he kept Jesus... They didn't let him go back. They took his passport, his phone, his laptop. They tried to take him, get him to take medicine to undo the brainwashing that was the only possible explanation for their son having become a Christian. 
his whole family put him under enormous emotional pressure, and actually um, uh, his dad physically assaulted him at one point. All because he stood there and said, I want to be baptized, I want to identify myself in the name of Jesus. That's the reality for many, many people around the world today. The church is under attack. And it actually happens in this country too. I, I served on a Christian camp a few years ago with a guy who was from a Muslim background. Again, came to faith at university, went home and said, um, I've become a Christian, I've got baptised. He did it the other way around. Um, and his family said, that's fine, you, you're never coming in this house again. You're not welcome anymore. So I just cut him out. He went to live with his, his pastor. Now, most of the time in this country, praise God, it doesn't feel like that. That's not the kind of opposition we face. It's friends laughing at us, just giving us the sense that we're stupid for believing this stuff. Maybe it's parents putting pressure on us, not necessarily to give up our faith, but just to stop taking it so blooming seriously, right? Why are you organizing your life around this? Well, it's, if we're at work, it's colleagues just cutting us out, just, just not including us because we're going to spoil the fun. It's, not, it's, just, it's the small things of opposition, or even just the fear of those things. The fear of those cold shoulders that, that leads us to keep our faith quiet because we want to avoid that kind of pressure. The church is under attack. So how should we respond? Well, not fight, not flight, not avoid. Pray. Look at verse 5 with me. The church prays. The church prays. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. <clears throat> now that word, <clears throat> excuse me, that word earnestly is the same word that Luke uses when he's talking about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that gives you a sense of what kind of prayer this is. This isn't tick box prayer. This isn't, oh, we should probably have a prayer meeting because Peter's in prison prayer. This is heartfelt, gut-wrenching, passionate prayer. This is up all night praying prayer. This is the prayer of people who believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, if one part of the body suffers, all of the body suffer. This is the prayer of a church who know that they're in a spiritual battle, that there is opposition, and that prayer is the weapon that they have. Do you think we could be that church? Do you think we could pray like that? I know I very, very rarely pray like that. Could we be a church that prays passionately for our brothers and sisters around the world, like Farshan facing persecution? I'm terrible at doing that. So this week, I was writing my sermon, I'm thinking, I can't stand up here and tell people to pray for the church, I'm not doing it. So I thought, what should I do? Well, there's, there's an Open Doors, which is a really great organization, have a prayer app that you can get on your phone that will just send you a notification each day, a little true story about um, a Christian per facing persecution, and a suggested prayer. Can we pray for our brothers and sisters facing persecution? But it's not just out there. It's in here. Like, I don't know what you're all facing. We don't know the opposition that one another's facing at work, at home, with family, the kind of tension that could come from trying to live all out for Jesus, trying to share Jesus with people. 
Let's talk about it. Let's pray for one another. And I want to do that right now. I know it's strange, unusual in the middle of a sermon to stop and pray, but it feels weird to talk about prayer being the answer and not not pray. (laughs) So let's pray together now. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you know what it is to suffer. You know what it is to face persecution and opposition. And Lord, you, you, you tell us um, that because if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate his body, his people, his church. And so Lord, we lift up your church around the world, and particularly those brothers and sisters who live in places where it's so much harder to follow you than it is here. Please strengthen and encourage them. Please relieve their suffering where that is what is needed. And Lord, we don't know the opposition that we face day to day, that the people in this church family gathered together in this building right now face. But we lift each one of us up to you. Please strengthen, support, keep us going. Give us confidence in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So the church prays. It's kind of who we are, really. The church prays. It's the turning point of the passage. And it can be the turning point um, for us, too, as we face uh, opposition. Because when we pray, the Lord, God, the Lord Almighty, hears and he answers our prayers. It's basic, isn't it? I don't know how many, how many times do you think you've, st- you've, you've sat in church and someone said, when we pray, God answers. Hundreds? Thousands? But do you, be- do you actually really believe it? Like right in your bones, do you believe that prayer actually does stuff? That it's not just talking, it's not just a nice Christian thing to do, that, that when we pray we are speaking to a God who made and sustains all things, that he hears somehow, miraculously, wonderfully, in Christ, he hears our prayers and he does stuff. Do we really believe that? Do we pray like that's true? We might talk like it's true. Do we pray like it's true? Well, let's have a look at the rest of the passage together because the church prays and God hears and God rescues. God rescues. Look down at me at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was actually happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the second and first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would would happen. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and he has rescued me. The church prays, God hears, God rescues. And God did it all. Peter, to be frank, is useless, right? He's asleep 
when the rescue starts. So he's not like, he's not like he's got his spoon out and he's, you know, no, he's just, he's just asleep, going nowhere. The angel comes and he's half asleep the whole way through. Do you notice that? I love the fact that the angel has to tell him to get dressed, right? You think, middle of a prison break, you're going to go out. The angel says, Peter, put on your clothes and your sandals. Wrap your cloak around me and follow me. So he's far asleep, and he's wandering out thinking, oh, the beginning of this was real, wasn't it? <laughs> Shame it's a vision. And then it's only when the angel leaves him, he looks around and thinks, oh, actually, I'm out of prison. Fancy that, right? Peter, there's nothing special about Peter. He doesn't do anything special. And what's interesting is, is there's nothing special about the faith of those praying either. I wonder when I was talking about, you know, being a church that prays like that, you think, I'm not, I don't have that kind of faith, right? Well, isn't it interesting that when Peter goes to the house where he knows people are praying for him, and Rhoda comes to the door, and it's Peter's voice, and she's really excited, she goes back, what do they say to her? Which is, it's Peter, it's Peter. They say, you're out of your mind. So hang on, hang on. They were praying for God to, to save Peter somehow from, from prison and death. When Peter shows up at the door, they say, yeah, yeah, come off it. They didn't think God could pull it off. But he did. Peter doesn't do anything special. The people praying don't do anything special. But God is a pretty special God. He's an extraordinary God. An earth-shattering, world-changing, prison-breaking God. And so he rescues. And not just then. God rescues today. Uh, Farsham, we left him, didn't we? facing enormous pressure, including physical assault from his parents. And Farshan prayed. And more than that, he reached out. So he reached out to Sarah and Jason, and they reached out to their prayer supporters, some of whom are part of this church family who get their prayer letter. And so God's church prayed. And guess what? God rescues. The day Farshan was due to be thrown out of his parents' house, a work trick came up, and the men, it wasn't going to happen logistically. A 70-year-old psychologist confronted Farshan's father about his attitude toward his son. God has continued to soften Farshan's parents and his wider family towards his faith to the point where Farshan is now freely able to go to church, to worship God, to be, be encouraged by other believers. God rescues. So whether you're facing opposition right now, or whether you're fearing opposition, and I think all of us are one of the two, <laughs> pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Ask others to pray for you. Because when the church prays, God hears and God rescues. But, but maybe you're thinking, not always though. God doesn't always rescue. Like, look at James, right? Here we are in this passage. You're going, oh, isn't it brilliant? Isn't it wonderful? God, God rescued Peter. Well, what about poor old James? Verse 2, James, the brother of John, put to the test of the sword. Where was God then? Why didn't God stop that? Or you're thinking, oh, yeah, no, it's great to hear about Farshan and his family, but what about you told me that pastors and normal Christians are being killed? What about them? Why didn't God rescue them? Where was God then? God did rescue them. God rescued James. God rescued all of those pastors, all of those Christians, because God rescues every single person who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course, the great rescue is not the prison break here, but the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus escaped the very clutches of death. 
And if, if you trust in Jesus, you're united to him in his death and in his resurrection. Where's James now? With Jesus. Where are those pastors now? With Jesus. Where will they be one day reigning with Jesus in a perfect new world? God rescues everyone who trusts in Jesus. And actually, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us through Luke, wants us to see that what we're, what we're, watching, what we're watching in some sense in Acts 12 is the aftershock of the great earthquake that is the resurrection. When was, um, what time of year was Peter arrested? During the festival of unleavened bread, that is, um, after the, that is the Passover. When was Jesus arrested? Passover. At the start of the rescue, Peter is lying in a sealed prison, guarded. On the Saturday evening, between Good Friday and Sunday, Jesus is lying in a sealed tomb, guarded. What changes it? An angel of the Lord appears, and light shines around. Where does that sound familiar from? Luke 24, an angel of the Lord appears at the tomb, and a bright light shines. Who does Peter appear to first? He appears to a woman, the servant girl Rhoda. Who does Jesus appear to first? The women. What happens when the woman tries to go and tell the blokes that this has really happened, that Peter's really risen? Well, they don't believe Rhoda. What happened back in Luke 24? The disciples didn't believe the women. This is Peter's resurrection. A type, a shadow, an aftershock of the earth-shattering event that is Jesus' defeat of death. Right. It matters that we see that because our confidence in God's rescue is not built on what God did for Peter. Because he didn't do it for James. Does that make sense? We can't build it on what God did for Peter. And we can't build it on what God did for Farshan. Those things can encourage us, they can strengthen us, but they can't serve as the foundation for our confidence in God's power to rescue. Only one rescue can, that is God's rescue of Jesus. When all the forces and powers conspired together to nail Jesus to a cross, God rescued him. He raised him to life. And if you're sitting here this afternoon, and to be honest, for the last five minutes, you've been thinking, yeah, this is lovely, but this is stupid, right? No one, chains don't just fall off people's wrists. Miracles like this don't happen. Grow up. Well, let me just say, don't start with the aftershock. Start with the earthquake. Because the resurrection happened, and it did, I'd love to chat more about that. historical evidence is, is, is rock solid. If the resurrection happened, this is the aftershock. But if, you, if you're sitting here this afternoon and you are trusting in Jesus, trusting in his death and in his resurrection, then get this. Your rescue is in some sense already past tense. Because you are united to Jesus Christ and so his resurrection is the sure and certain guarantee of your resurrection. His rescue is the sure and certain guarantee of your rescue. And so I can stand before you today and say, if we were facing death, we would know that God was going to rescue us. If death was the cost of living for Jesus, of speaking of Jesus, we would know that God will rescue us. We could face that in some sense. And I, people down the ages, martyrs down the ages, have faced death with joy and confidence because they know that God rescues. 
So how much more then? How much more can we face what it actually costs us? A loss of face, a loss of status, a bit of disappointment from us. How much more can we face that and face those things with joy? Confident in the hope set before us of everlasting resurrection life with Jesus. God rescues. So the church is under attack. The church prays. God rescues. And God judges. God judges. And towards the end of our passage, the, the camera swings back, doesn't it, to Herod. He strikes a peace deal with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Um, and then we're going to pick up the story in verse 21. So do have a look down with me, 1107. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. <laughs> Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. We will come back to the worms. <laughs> For now, what I want you to see is that it's because Herod did not give praise to God. That's, what, that's ultimately here, because Herod did not give praise to God. That means Herod did not want or accept that God is God and Herod is not God. Instead, he received the praise due to a God. He set himself up as God, in opposition to God and God's people and God's plan, and God judged him. There's a reversal of power here, because at the start of the passage, Herod's the one in the box seat throwing people in prison, having James killed, arresting Peter to please others. And then God strikes. It's easy to miss. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone on the cell. He struck Peter on the side. God strikes Peter awake. He strikes Peter to lead him out to life and freedom. Verse 23, exactly the same word. An angel of the Lord strikes Herod. But this time, rather than striking him to set him free, to lead him up and out and away to life, he strikes him down to death. God turns the tables. That's kind of what God's judgment does. Turns the tables on those who are, oppress, who are evil, who are oppressors. It writes, he writes the wrongs. Sorry. It's time to come back to the worms now. Um, weird, right? Um, the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. I'm not a medical doctor. I know there are medical professionals out there. I'm looking at one, thinking, I hope this is... The commentators that I've read are confident that this is medically possible, that you can basically have sufficiently bad intestinal worms. So you're thinking like flatworms, tapeworms, apparently it was worse in the ancient Near East, such that you have a really bad... There's some grossed-out faces I'm seeing here. So you have a sufficiently bad intestinal obstruction that it causes you to die. Enough of that, right? I, I think there's more. I think there's more going on than that. Because in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, we get this description of eternal judgment. They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, those like Herod. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. That's a verse that Jesus himself quotes in Mark 9 when he's warning against the reality of hell. So I put it to you that the, detail, that the worms there are, are, are to point us beyond Herod's physical death towards the sobering reality of eternal judgment for Herod and those who with him oppose God and his people and his plans and do not repent. 
in this passage alone, Herod has had a number of people thrown in prison for no good reason, killed James for no good reason, thrown Peter in prison for no good reason, and then we skipped over this, killed two guards for something that wasn't their fault. Right, it's evil. And God judges it. And I know that that's uncomfortable, right? God rescues, we are all behind a God who rescues. God judges, not so much, right? We'd, we'd love, hang on, yeah, because the thing is, God judges, that's exactly the kind of bit of Christianity that gets us opposed in the first place. <laughs> that's the kind of bit of Christianity that you think, oh yeah, that's the bit I'm not going to talk about, right? We, we, can't we just leave that bit out? Can't we just do without the God who judges? Well, let me gently suggest that we can only, that thought only takes hold, only makes sense to the extent that we live lives sheltered from the reality of evil. I stand here as someone who has lived an incredibly sheltered life. Um, but here's someone who hasn't. Uh, Miroslav Volf is going to appear on the screen. Um, he is a theologian, and importantly for this purpose, he's a Croatian theologian. So during the 1990s, he saw his home country, Croatia, and indeed that entire region, torn apart, characterized by almost unimaginable atrocities, genocidal atrocities through the Balkan Wars. And Miroslav Volf, he writes this. He says, It takes the choir of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis, thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. What he's saying is that when you're brought face to face with real evil, with a scorched land or with the blood of the innocent, there are two choices that human beings face at that point. One is to find your own guns. To fight back. The other is to trust in the just judgment of God. That is it. The idea that human nonviolence can be based on the idea that God is nice too dies in the face of real evil. It doesn't hold up. And so as God's church, we do not fight back. Jesus says, put away your swords. We do not fight back. We pray. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And Christ calls us to pray for our enemies. And the rest we trust to the God who rescues and the God who judges. So as I close, to be together on mission, to be part of God's plan for the salvation of the whole world is in many ways the highest honor and privilege that any human being could have. God doesn't need us at all, and yet he chooses to include us. But he doesn't promise us it's going to be easy. He doesn't promise us it's going to be easy. The church is under attack back then, right now. But when opposition comes, we don't have to fight back. We don't have to run away. We don't have to change the way we, we do things so that we avoid it. Instead, the church prays. And God rescues and God judges. Back then, right now. And here's the result. Verse 24, last verse of our passage. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. The word of God continued to spread and flourish despite all of this. Because nothing can stop it. 
Nothing can stop the word of God growing. Nothing can stop the church growing. And we need to hear that. And we need to know that because it seems entirely possible to me that over the next 10, 20, 50 years, over our lifetimes, it's going to get much harder to be a Christian in this country. To live faithfully, following Jesus, to share our faith in Jesus. It's entirely possible that that happens if we continue on the current trajectory of turning our back as a country on the moral framework that Christianity has provided for, for centuries. The church might well get smaller. My little church has failed. But it hasn't, it won't. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. We stand on Jesus' promise. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so like Peter, like James, like Farsham, we can build our lives on that promise. It came from the lips of the risen and conquering Jesus. Let's take a moment of quiet together and then I'll uh, draw us to a close in prayer. Almighty Father, we praise you that the central reality of the universe we live in is that Jesus is alive, that you rescued him from the grave. Thank you that if we trust in him, we are united to him by faith, that his resurrection is our resurrection, his rescue is our rescue. Lord, help us to grow lives of prayer together and as individuals that we might live out that unity with Christ and be prepared for whatever we might face. In his name we pray. Amen.